everybody. You're listening to Drive Into the Basket, part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I am Mike, your host, and hope all of you had a very happy holiday season. Hard to believe we're already into 2023. Hard to believe we are also, as I record this, which is on Tuesday night, uh, night before I post, we are one game shy of halfway through the Detroit Pistons 2022-2023 season. It has gone very fast, and I would wager not quite as any of us would have hoped. You know, if we'd sat down prior to the season and you know, had a big round table of Detroit Pistons fandom. And the question had been asked, well, if I were to tell you that after 40 games, Pistons would be 10 and 30 and have the worst winning percentage in the league, what would you say? And I think a lot of us would say, well, then, you know, with Cade on the team and his sophomore season with all of his promise, you bring in Jaden Ivey and you're hoping for improvement from uh, from a lot of, of young players, or at least a few of them, then, you know, something must have gone really, really wrong. And, yeah, obviously something did go wrong. Uh, Kate is out. The team has been a mess. There have been a few bright spots, uh, but it's been a tough season, without a doubt. Uh, not what we are really looking for. And of course, the best you can say at this point, uh, you know, in, in terms of the potential outcome of the season as a whole, you know, barring an incredible turnaround is, hey, okay, the Pistons are very well positioned, the Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes. And would it be all worthwhile if the Pistons come away with the first overall pick? Well, yeah, obviously, uh, because the you know Victor looks to be just an incredible, transcendent NBA prospect. My only concerns about him really are his health. Uh, but we're a ways away from draft lottery night. It does kind of suck that again we're looking forward to draft lottery night. I didn't expect the play-ins this season by any means. I mean, the Pistons I didn't feel like got that much better. Losing Jeremy Grant was a step backward. Uh, of course, he's been re- his production's been replaced by Boyan, which is not something I expected coming into the season. The Boyan's, of course, significantly worse on offense. And but just in general, I mean, the Pistons didn't add enough talent to really take that step in a conference that is more competitive than it has been in a very long time. That said, here I am talking about the plan when the Pistons are are ten and thirty. Whatever season is where it is. Just can can hope for more progress from the young players throughout the breadth of it. It's definitely been ugly to this point. And one of my thoughts for this episode, I talk about a few items of recent news, but just to go over, you know, where are we? It's been almost three years at this point since the Pistons. It's actually been three years, like three years to the day as I record this, since we saw the Pistons, signs that the Pistons were really pivoting to a rebuild. Since the day in 2020. So this is actually, I looked back January 3rd of 2020. We heard that the Pistons were putting Andre Drummond on the trade block, uh, where he garnered a very, very minimal return, as he should have. So the Pistons have been at this for a while, because after that, I mean, it was hard tank. The Pistons were trying to lose games to get draft position in 2020. And then, of course, we had the last two seasons. We all know what happened then. And this has all been to build toward the Pistons returning to a point at which they can contend, which has not been the case for a very, very long time. Come the end of the season, it will have been 15 seasons since the last time the Pistons were really a respectable playoff team. That was back in 2008. They lost that game against the game six against the Celtics. And of course, we all know what happened next season. They traded Chauncey that the window of the going to work Pistons was was rapidly closing at that stage. It's been a long time. And the rebuild feels like it's been a long time since it has been a long time at this stage. And some good things have happened, without a doubt. The Pistons have got some good talent on the team. But, you know, let's you know, take a look at where they are and where they need to be. Now, I think that this was a couple of years ago, did an episode of this podcast called The Roster Needs of a Contender. And I'll be honest, I just thought of that and uh, have not have not gone through and, and re-listened to it. But 
It's basically, I, I know enough. I can remember enough to tell you that, you know, it was about, you know, what does your team need to contend in today's NBA? So what do you need to contend in today's NBA? I still subscribe, you know, number one, I mean, superstars, superstars are an absolute necessity to win, to, you know, to win your championships in today's NBA. The days of the going to work Pistons are very, very, very much past. The NBA is a very, very different place. Not only does defense no longer win championships, like you can't win on defense. The NBA made that impossible because, it, you know, unless you were a fan of the Spurs or a fan of the Pistons, it was incredibly boring to watch those teams. It was incredibly boring to, to, to turn on the TV and watch just the defensive battle in which your team was completely smothered by the other team. And thus we had the changes to hand checking, which came about in 2005. And those would have, you know, far reaching implications. Of course, defense became a lot more difficult and just winning as a hard nosed defensive team was no longer possible. Do you still need to be a good defensive team to win a championship these days? Yes. You can't do it without the offense. You know, you need to have an elite offense and to have that elite offense, you need superstar scorers. That's non-negotiable in today's NBA. So, you know, I, I still subscribe to the to this formula. You either got, got to have yourself two superstar scorers or one superstar scorer and two all-star scorers. You know, leaving aside circumstances of injury or whatever else, like, you know, for example, the Raptors, you know, they're, they're two good scorers were Kawhi Leonard and Pascal Siakam. Lowry was technically an all-star. He didn't have particularly good playoffs, whatever the case. So you need that superstar talent and you need a team that's good at shooting. You need a team that's got sufficient athleticism. Uh, you need a team that's properly switchable because that defense is important. If you have like any, you know, severe problem members of your team uh, on defense, they will be attacked constantly. Uh, you need good fortune, of course, in any postseason. And, uh, you know, that, that this all seems like a significant way in the future. I mean, the, the idea, I'm sure, in this rebuild, you get what you can in any rebuild. You get what you can in the draft, and then, uh, you know, you hope to get whatever you need to finish, you know, to, to complete your roster in trade or in free agency. So I'm saying this again in the midst of a 10-30 and 30 season, like the, the, third, the third rebuild season. Uh, to be basically close to three and a half by the time this one is over. So it, it feels a little bit weird. Um, I'm not saying necessarily the Pistons are in bad position. The Pistons have some high ceiling young talent. Uh, but as I said earlier, like in, in, in an episode very early in the season, the Pistons have a good start. The team is also incredibly incomplete at this stage. So I'm sure if I were to to poll all of you, if I could do that, uh, the most common response I would get is, is to if, you know, if I asked the question, What's the most important factor here? You know, what's the most important factor in the Pistons rebuild at, at this point? Well, I mean, I suppose some of you would say, you know, win the next draft lottery and get Victor Wembanyama. Okay, it's like, okay, that, that's fair. <laughs> but in terms of what has already happened, uh, I'm sure that in a landslide, the number one answer would be Cade Cunningham becomes a superstar. And I think that Cade has a superstar ceiling. You know, he was that highly touted number one overall pick in a strong draft for a reason. Uh, you know, really nobody in that draft oddly enough, is, is yet to pop off, so to speak. Uh, it's only season number two, so that's a weird way of putting it. Nobody's having like a killer season two yet, put it that way. Of course, Kate is out. Jalen Green is is chucking away on like really meh efficiency and committing about as many turnovers as assists. And Evan Mobley is, has found himself as like the number three, number four option for the Cavaliers, who are now a very good team. Uh, Scotty Barnes is in the midst of a major sophomore slump. Goodness, Jalen Suggs can't stay healthy. Uh, Franz Wagner is really the best off out of all of those rookies at this point. I mean, he's fairly impressive, solid role player, whatever. I digress. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'll keep saying it. I think Kate Cunningham is a superstar ceiling. And he unfortunately came into the season with a tibial stress fracture. And if you're playing on any injury in the NBA, it's going to hurt significantly. I mean, the NBA is a league of is such a high standard that if you are dealing with a nagging disadvantage, like 
having a stress fracture in your lower leg, it's probably going to hurt you to such a degree that you're going to lose just a certain amount of edge. So it's going to make your life a lot more difficult. We all came into the season hoping that Cave was going to be able to drive effectively at the net, uh, be able to, of course, significantly improve his three-point percentage. Uh, you know, how much was, was the injury he was playing with? How much did that impact those two things? Because he was still settling for a lot of mid-range pull-ups. And, and like I've said about Killian, sure, if you can hit those at 50%, that's great, but that's not going to be a means to an end for you. Though he had some games in which he was unstoppable from mid-range, you know, and if you're shooting high 50s from mid-range, you know, go ahead, take those shots constantly. You know, if you can create those shots off the dribble and make them, you know, sweet. But he was having trouble getting into the basket still, despite having added quite a bit of strength. He was needless to say struggling a great deal from three still. I got to think that his injury did impact the former. Did it impact the latter? Who knows? It's entirely possible. I mean, obviously you're pushing off your lower leg there when you're, when you're going up for a shot. All told, yeah, it was... He, he didn't exactly look as we had hoped. And I, I think the, the injury is a reasonable excuse for that. In terms of his playmaking, six assists against three turnovers, that was promising. You obviously want to be better than a two-to-one assist turnover ratio, but his penchant for turnovers on kind of not NBA qualified passes was an issue, you know, was an issue coming into the league. And it seemed like he'd really improved upon that. Whatever the case, I think that Cade is still a guy who can come in on heavy, you know, and will, and it will improve to, you know, hopefully that I think will at the very least be a perennial all-star in this league and hopefully be the superstar. And I think he can be that we all hope for. Like he's a guy who's, who's extremely smart. <clears throat> I think can come be one of those, I'll put it this way, just come in and, and handle the ball on a heavy possession. I'd be, be excellent at breaking down defenses at finding guys uh, to whom that opens up uh, at always making the right play on offense, or for the most part, nobody always makes the right play, but uh, but really bringing his excellent offensive IQ and ability to think ahead uh, to the table, being able to score from all three levels. We've seen that he can score mid-range pull-ups. I think he'll be able to attack the basket effectively. And I got to think that shooting touch will come back also. And thinks that this is, I think he's a guy who's ultimately going to be shooting those pull-up threes as well. Just very, very difficult cover who can break down the defense and make the right play. And, you know, hopefully score on volume as well. A guy who's going to be able to lead your offense and lead your team because he's very much by by every account we have a leader also like on and off the court. So if we're looking and I feel confident, pretty confident in this, if we're looking, okay, the Pistons have that superstar, I'd say I think there's a pretty good shot <clears throat> that, that, you know, the, that at least you have that superstar who's hopefully going to be able to lead the team going forward. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then you look beyond that. So of course, going into this last draft, you got to think that the priority was finding, you know, a number two to Cade's number one, you know, another guy who could score at, at hopefully at least the star level. And and that's where you ended up with Jaden Ivey. I've said it before. Jaden was my, uh, was my one B behind Benedict Matherin, who uh, I should note. Well, two things I should note. Number one, I hope that Jaden Ivey, despite my, despite my preference being Benedict Matherin, I hope that Jaden Ivey is the better player. And number two, Matherin started strong and has been awful for like his last 20 games. Uh, I, I guess I'm saying the second one just for informational purposes because I still see that narrative out there. Oh man, you know, Matherin is, is having such a strong season. No, he started strong and he's been pretty darn bad. So is Ivy, but uh, it's been pretty darn bad for, for a little while now. Not that that necessarily matters in any case. So yeah, there was that hope. I'm sure that was the hope for Troy Weaver as well. I mean, one of the reasons I, I really did not want for example, Keegan Murray was like, I, I thought that the Pistons really need another guy who can who can create at a high level. I felt like Matherin had that potential. Ivy, of course, has that potential as well. I think that of the two, Ivy has the higher ceiling. I, I, my questions around the draft were, is he going to reach it? What's his likelihood of reaching it, particularly 
reaching the same sort of same level of value as Matherin when he's going to have to be, you know, not playing on the ball quite as much because he's playing next to Cade. You know, we'll see how that goes. I'll maintain that, you know, well, obviously we'll see more of it next season. Hopefully it's under a different coach because I don't think Dwayne Case is the guy who's ever going to make that work. But uh, you look at Jaden Ivey. Okay, definitely a high ceiling, extremely athletic, um, you know, crafty on his way to the basket, though he's kind of stuck in no man's land right now in terms of his his efforts to actually attack the basket. He's just kind of stuck in a weird place. And, you know, if he can get it together as a shooter and, uh, you know, be a strong on-ball scorer, I think be, be also a fairly a guy who can take the ball already in motion and attack the rim. You know, when he's got somebody to kind of create for him or create good circumstances for him, I think he'll be particularly dangerous. So if he can do that, if he can shoot well enough, he can find ways to be to be effective off the ball and he can improve from where he's at into becoming a capable secondary creator. Um, sure, you know, I think definitely under a better offensive coach, you could have Jaden Ivey scoring at the star level. Um, I think that I'm a little bit less certain about him than I am about Cade, just because my concerns over Ivy, my concerns about Ivy pretty much remain the same as they were going into the draft. You know, is he going to be able to be really successful in a more secondary role? Is going, he going to be able to, like, he, he's not going to be playing on the ball as much as he was in college if he's playing next to Cade. And so he's going to have to, you know, be effective nonetheless. He's going to have to find ways. He's going to have to be a good off-ball player. Is he going to, you know, when he is on the ball, can he make those split-second reads and passes that he struggled with at times in the NCAA and against the vast more difficult defenses in the NBA? And can he be a consistent shooter? There's also the in-between game, but yeah, so those are still there. But, uh, you know, almost every draft pick is a risk, you know, especially when you're shooting a guy like Abby. But yeah, so remains to be seen. Been a difficult season for him so far. Like as I speak, uh, you know, despite the fact that he, you know, he did fairly decently well early on at this point, he's at 41% from the field and 31.5% from three. And he's averaging about one assist more than, you know, four, four assists versus 2.8 turnovers. It's been a tough time for him. Only 73% from free throw range, too. That was an issue for him in college, too. You know, but uh, let's look on the bright scene. You know, let's look at an, op- at an optimistic take here. You have Ivy. If he develops, you know, hopefully he becomes that star scorer who's a good fit with Kate. Okay, great. Then, you know, you've, in, in terms of your high-level talent, you've gotten yourself pretty close to where you need to be. And then hopefully you trade for a guy, you know, somebody to be the, the third piece of that puzzle, and, and you're in good shape. And this is, I suppose you say that, okay, great. You know, we've ha- happily ever after everything is fine. Um, I'm just kind of winging this. Uh, I thought I would just come in and wouldn't say have a discussion because I'm just pretty much talking to myself about where the Pistons are. I didn't, I didn't really put together a thesis about this. Um, you know, having admitted that, I mean, let's look at what else, what else the Pistons have on the team. The current best scorer, Boyan Bogdanovich, who is getting, uh, geez, I always forget how, uh, I, I know Boyan's 33, so I'm going to click and see what it says. Okay. Boyan's very close to 34. He's, uh, he's about three months away from 34, three and a half months. So best current scorer on the team. Boyan's come in. He's been very impressive. I did not anticipate him being this good on offense. I thought, you know, he was a guy who really benefited from uh, playing within an excellent system next to some good players. Well, one in particular, Donovan Mitchell, but again, you know, in a deep pool of players on offense with the jazz instead, he's, he's come in and basically, I mean, he's, he's replaced and then some the offensive production that Jeremy Grant provided for the Pistons last season. And that said, he's going to be about 34 when the season ends, assuming the Pistons are, I mean, he's a guy whose game is, I think, going to age well enough that he's not going to fall out of the league and definitely doesn't depend on his athleticism. He depends upon his smarts and his shooting ability. But is he going to be a guy who's on the team, you know, hopefully the Pistons are are a playoff team two years from now, you know, unless things really go wrong uh, at the top end, that being Ivy and Cade. 
I'm confident they will be, you know, is, is Boyan on the timeline? I would say probably not. So I, I just don't think he's going to be a major piece of the puzzle moving forward. Also Boyan here's, and here's one thing I, I think we should mention if we're talking about the possibility of trading him. And I don't, as I said, a few episodes ago, I, I'm not convinced that it's a good idea to trade him at this point because that'll just take a, take a roster that's already pretty, um, it's having trouble on offense. Well, so you're having even more trouble on defense and Boyan's a big part of that because the guy's a mess on defense. Uh, but that's basically my point. Actually, we'll go to his defense. In terms of should the Pistons trade Boyan Bogdanovich, he's got some issues as a postseason player. He was one of the major cogs of that whole, you know, the Jazz have Rudy Gobert, who's you know, a great defender, but his teammates are all turnstiles. Storyline of the last two offseasons. And the Jazz ended up out of the playoffs because they couldn't play defense. Boyan was a big part of that. Like a big, big part of that. Uh, in the playoffs... If you're a bad defender, you get targeted. The other team will run schemes either to isolate on you or just basically to do whatever they can to to, to exploit your weakness. And and Boyan was exploited. That didn't help, obviously, that, that Donovan Mitchell turned into a traffic going on defense also. Or or that, if I remember correctly, Royce O'Neal was pretty darn bad. Or that just the, you can target Gobert in the postseason. It's completely and utterly bizarre to me that the Timberwolves gave up that much for Gobert, who is not a good suit, does not have agency on offense. And if you just run a scheme that, that brings him out to the perimeter, then his value plummets because he's not in the interior anymore. And he's not only that, I would say that's the biggest deal. On, on top of that, he's not an elite switch defender by any means. He's okay. But whatever the case, that there is a substantial reduction in Boyan's uh, you know, playoff ceiling. I'm not going to call it playoff ceiling, playoff value. Those are the words I was looking for. So who else do we have? Jalen Duran. Okay. And, and, and Duran has been impressive since, you know, especially given how raw he was coming in. I mean, Duran, he reclassified. He was in, he was at Memphis for what should have been or what would otherwise have been his senior year of high school. Uh, if he had not reclassified, he would be a freshman in college right now. He came in very raw. He's been very strong in the boards. Uh, he showed quite a bit of uh, potential on defense. Uh, he, he's got a ways to go in terms of his refinement on offense. Right now, he's basically just focusing on being a garbage man and, and you know, and a finisher of easy baskets. He's got a lot of promise. And, um, you know, I, I think that he's a guy, if, if he develops as we hope, and I think that he stands a good chance of doing so, it could be your starting center of the future. And the questions, of course, abound about, not abound, there are questions about what his offensive ceiling is. Is he ever going to be a shooter? You know, who knows? Is What's his touch around the basket like? Hopefully he can improve on on basic layups, but he's you know he's he's powerful enough that he's going to be able to dunk a lot. It's a matter of if you get them to get on the ball in a difficult situation, can he score with it? You know those those are points points gained or points lost. Uh, you look at his free throw percentage, which you know has been improving, but it's still on the season at fifty six percent. So, what's your ceiling version of Jalen Duran? I'm not going to get into can the guy launch threes because that's just in complete unknown territory right now. Some guys do, some guys don't. We've seen non-shooters become shooters. We've seen the guys who are traditional bigs become shooters. Um, but it, sometimes it doesn't happen. So let's look at what Jalen Duran could be if he's not able to do that. So at, in terms of his ceiling, like we saw some work at Memphis in which he operated in a short role, either as a passer or taking kind of like short pull-up jumpers. If he can do that, great. You know, his, his agency on offense improves. It increases quite a bit. Uh, because he can, you know, do a little bit of creation from away from the basket, and he's just versatility as a passer in the short roll would be very, very nice. And we've seen that Duran is able to make the right pass. He's always looking around when he gets the ball. It's not just I get the ball and I'm just going to try to jam it. I get the ball and I'm just going to get rid of it in a road fashion, which is what it is for a lot of traditional bigs. So there's that upside as a passer. Where will it take him? Who knows? But if he becomes a capable passer, if he's able to do that sort of work out of the short roll, great. 
if he improves into a better finisher and then if he can be the defender that I hope he can be and that I think he's got a fair shot of becoming a guy who who's able to be very strong in drop coverage and also quite capable in switch coverage. The guy, I mean, he's, he's, he's highly athletic. He's able to play effective help side rim defense. He's able to play effective recovery rim defense. Uh, he's, I mean, he's still learning. He's still learning to move his feet laterally and to stay with guys and just to position himself properly. And again, this is a guy who should, right now should be a freshman in college. The question of course is, you know, how much of it, like there's, you can't, like you cannot develop elite defensive IQ. You've either got it or you've not, or you haven't got it. So it's a question of how much of this is is just a lack of experience versus what is his level of of, of just general defensive acumen. So if he does have that high level defensive acumen, and he can couple it with his physical assets. Then great, so you have a guy who might make some all defensive teams. So I know I'm just getting into optimism territory here, but you know if he can get there, if he become that strong. That strong, very, very strong defender and that uh, a stronger interior finisher and, and a solid passer, then um, cool. You know, you've got your starting center of the future on a contender. At the same time, I don't even know where I'm going with this now because I'm just talking about optimistic outcomes. And, and with Jalen Duran, I don't really, I definitely don't feel at all comfortable talking about, you know, just making projections. The guy is like 37 games into his NBA career right now and is not, did, and only turned 19 years old this season. So. But you've got promise there, is my point, is where you're looking at. Um, and all right, so you look beyond that. You know, where, where are the Pistons in terms of the assets that they've accrued? So you've got Isaiah Stewart. Been over Isaiah Stewart. It's great that he's improved his shooting. And he's like a, a fantastic character guy. And I hope, you know, he's a pretty strong rebounder. I hope he's on the team for a long, long time. You know, solid role player. Might feel confident. Well, so, you know, can soak up minutes in the playoffs. He could be an ideal guy to put out there at times, you know, should other teams really go small. Um, because Isaiah loses nothing by going out to defend on the perimeter. You know, he's, he's just a fantastic switch defender. And uh, as we've seen, he can also, he can space the floor. So if the Pistons really want to go small against an opponent in a, in a situation like, I mean, who knows? Like, who knows what the situation would be? You go up against the Cavaliers, for example, and you just you just want to keep Jared Allen away from, well, it doesn't work. You can't do that against the Cavaliers because Jared Allen will punish you for going small. So whatever, I'm not going to postulate in the scenario. It would be like a Gobert-like scenario when you have a guy who can really, a guy who can't punish you for going small on him. And it just, whatever. Uh, Isaiah, I think, will have will definitely have his role in the playoffs without a doubt. Uh, and he, you know, he's got some versatility. He's got his issues at center, but, uh, you know, in terms, of, in terms of defending against bigger guys and uh, defending against guys, other guys who will just score over him. But, and sorry about the sniveling, but... You know, it, it strikes me that he would suit well for playoff basketball. Uh, that said, I would say a role player, you know, probably a long-term bench player. Sadiq Bey, who this season has unfortunately not given us uh, really any of the sort of security that we would have liked. Uh, he's had a rough time, to say the least. Uh, he's shooting by far his worst from three thus far in the NBA. He has not been good from the field overall. He's, he's actually gone downhill in terms of his, his, uh, his two-point percentage, which was near 50%, which is a, really a big improvement. He's down to 47% there uh, again now. Uh, you know, Despite some big three-point three improvements, wait, we are some big games. Uh, Sadiq's having kind of, uh, kind of a rough time, especially for a player of his archetype. He's still taking about 50% of his shots from three. Now the hope was that Sadiq would be that guy who's you know going into the season it was like okay Sadiq's definitely you know definitely a long term starter for this team going forward like he has 
you know, he's a guy who I know some people are hoping, you know, some people, for example, there was talking coming into the season, can he be that number three guy in a championship team? I would have been thrilled if he was the number four guy in the champion on, on championship team. In the event, he has had his issues with Boyan, you know, with not his issues, but I mean, he and Boyan to put them on the floor together, the issue, you know, they, they play the same role of kind of, of play finishers. And anything that Bay can do, aside from kind of bodying guys on the inside, Boyan can do better. So that was kind of a, not a great thing for Sadiq. You kicked him to the bench. Wasn't really anything special there. His defense has been really bad. Um, you know, you want to talk about, I mean, worse than Boyan's maybe, you know, at, at least roughly as bad. So who knows what we have there now? I think this three-point uh, three percentage will improve. That defense is majorly concerning. What do we have there? You know, last year, I think we would have felt a lot better that, okay, we've got another guy here who can definitely be a long-term role player for this team. And I hope that's still the case. Hope that's a, this is just a down season, but it's been a completely weird thing. And uh, it's it's shaken some of my faith in Sadiq. Killian, who, uh, you know, who was brought on originally ostensibly to be point guard of the future for the Pistons. I mean, and that almost regardless of how well he had played, unless he played really well in his, in his rookie season. I mean, the Pistons were never not going to take Cade out of way with the number one overall pick just because Killian was on the team. But the whole kind of primary handler of the future thing went away the second that Cade was drafted. Killian has had has been much improved over the last like 15 games. He's still struggling quite a bit, still can't penetrate or won't penetrate. Um, but let's say he's a guy who just becomes an elite high volume three-point shooter who can play strong defense and just do some secondary playmaking. Cool. Bam. Role player guy you can play in the postseason. And Isaiah Livers, again, I think he'd just be a solid role player. Um, just a guy who who can you know play generally decent defense and hopefully hit, hopefully hit his threes at high percentage. And uh, then Bagley, who is a complete unknown at this point, is still a very negative value NBA player. And uh, Hamadou, I'll, I'll talk about both of them a little bit later in this episode. And of course, Corey Joseph, who unfortunately, despite being the titan of basketball that he is, uh, is already 31 years old. And uh, I don't even know where I was going with that joke. You guys know, I, I all know that I think I think pretty well of Kojo, not necessarily as a basketball player, but as, as just a, as, as just a solid guy to have on a rebuilding team. I, it's mostly just that I think that he gets flack that he doesn't deserve. Okay, so you've got your potential superstar. You've got hopefully another star scorer on Ivy. You've got a potentially high ceiling center in Duran, who I think, in any case, will develop to the point where where he could start at center. Maybe not be like a uh, like a great contributor, but could start. I, I think I feel pretty strongly that Jalen Duran will get to a point where he could start at center for a contender. So hopefully, you know, you're hoping, or I'm hoping, and you know, we're all hoping that he can be a little bit more than just good enough to do that. Um, but you've got that, and then you've got you know hopefully another another few role players in in Stewart Hayes. And, and Bay, and then your hope after that is to either be able to draft into the superstar caliber talents, or or trade for one, or who knows? Though this is always unlikely for the Pistons, maybe sign one in free agency. So I guess at the end of this really lengthy analysis, I would say that at this point, the Pistons I think are not looking necessarily bad at all. Of course, there's a lot more that you need. <laughs> you need a major. You know, you really just need things uh, in, in terms of. Talent development is really all that it's about in this team right now. I think that in terms of getting draft lottery luck and you know having solid talent available in the draft and, and also just doing some decent drafting, the Pistons are in fairly good position provided that the talent that they have develops as they hope. So obviously, I, I don't know it needs to be said that the Pistons are far better and in far better position than they were, say, five years ago or four years ago, four seasons ago. This was... Uh, you know, Blake Griffin in the midst of his all NBA season when the Pistons were basically hopeless to do anything but make it to the postseason and 
really had nothing in the way of ceiling. Uh, excuse me, they had, they had a really poor ceiling because there was very little you could hope for in terms of development. I mean, you had pretty much nobody on the team at that point. Your best young player was Bruce Brown. Uh, Bruce Brown is having a good season, by the way. I'd like to, for those who have said, why have the Pistons kind of lose? I'd like to point out that while he was a solid role player in uh, Brooklyn, and while he has drastically improved as a three-point shooter, it really helps to be playing next to Nikola Jokic. Really hope that helps to be playing a lot of, you know, in a situation in which you are going to get a lot of open shots and you're freed up by having arguably the greatest offensive player in the league and, and without a doubt, a center who can do things that no other center has ever been able to do. Uh, real nice if, if you're that guy, if you're that, that kind of role player like Bruce Brown playing next to Nicole Jokic. It's a good season. But whatever the case, obviously the Pistons, in terms of having the capacity to, to eventually hopefully feel the team that can meaningfully compete are drastically ahead of where they were a few years ago. You know, I think that goes without saying. And just in terms of where the rebuild stands, I think that's the the stage, you know, like put it this way, the table has been set fairly well, or you can say the stage has been set fairly well in terms of accumulating young talent with, you know, with, with good ceilings. And it just comes down to now how that talent will develop. And if we see the development we hope for, which I don't think is unrealistic from, you know, from Cade, from Ivy, from Jalen Duran. And the Pistons are are able to really capitalize. Well, hopefully, they get good luck in the upcoming draft and are able to capitalize on uh, and then just add another really good talent to the roster. Uh, and and you see that good development from the players already on the team. And then you take some of the assets they have, or, or whenever um, you know wherever they get that first round pick back under their control and can trade future firsts, and then hopefully you add another player on top. Then you know, cool, maybe you have a contender in the picture at that point. Or maybe if you have Victor Wemanyama on the team, maybe you don't even need to add that third guy. So I guess what I'm saying, things do seem pretty bleak right now. But in terms of the rebuild as a whole, uh, I think that things are in a decent place. Very incomplete. You know, a lot still has to happen in terms of development cutting the right way. And and maybe some some other other roster additions going the right way. And of course, draft lottery luck would help a lot in the upcoming summer. But I think that despite how bad things are right now, I'd say that the Pistons and the, the rebuild is is in a decent spot. And of course, I was going to say, you know, nothing to do but wait and watch. That's all we can do as fans. But I guess we say nothing to do but wait and watch and, and hope that that development cuts right. But it definitely has been a long road to this point already. There's There's no denying that. All right. So there are a few other items I'd like to get to in the remainder of this episode. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. The NBA season is heating up and there's still so many unknowns. For example, who will meet in the finals? And at this point, I'm going to predict the Celtics and the Nuggets. If you're looking to get on the action, bet with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers can bet just $5 per game money line on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. Right now, everyone can earn up to 100% boost with DraftKings stepped-up same-game parlays. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app, place the same-game parlay, and combine multiple bets like which team will win, total rebounds, and more. The more legs you add, the bigger the boost, the bigger your shot to win big. For example, if you're inclined to bet on sports in general, you could bet on the upcoming college football national championship game. Download the app now, sign up with code TBPN, place a $5 pregame money line bet on any NBA team to win their game and get a $150 in free bets if they do. That's code TBPN, only a drafting sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. So show notes for details. Okay, so item one, Marvin Bagley, whom we found out earlier today is going to miss a projected six to eight weeks due to having broken a couple of his fingers against in, in the recent game against the Portland Trailblazers. So sad news for Bagley, for whom injuries have been a constant companion throughout his time in the NBA. He has missed a lot of time due to injury during his time uh, since entering the NBA. 
And oddly enough, a lot of this has been due to hand injuries. I don't know if you can call somebody injury prone in the hands. I mean, that would be very novel, but like in his second season, he missed a ton of time with what's called a non-displaced fracture, which is to his right thumb. Uh, he injured it early on after only about, if I'm looking at it right now, 13 games. And he was set to make a comeback. And then the COVID shutdown happens. And then he hurt his foot, I believe, in a lower body injury and wasn't able to play in the bubble in the, in the Kings very short appearance in the bubble. And then in the next season, he missed a significant amount of time with a fracture of his left hand. And now he's broken two fingers again in his right hand. So injuries to both of his hands, which he has missed a lot of time. Uh, maybe injury prone there somehow, maybe just really bad fortune or whatever the case, he's out for a while. Uh, I spoke in last week's episode about my frustrations about how he's played so far. Uh, Bagley has had a bad season so far. His stats may not look that bad. He is almost invariably worse than his stats, significantly worse than his stats, in part because he's absolutely terrible on defense. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, he, and, and again, this is something I went over last week. He's really bad at drop coverage. He's made some improvements, but he's still really bad. He's an awful rim protector. And if you put him in a switching scheme, he's eventually going to make a mistake because his defensive IQ is rock bottom. Like it's, it's absolutely awful. He just does not seem to have that acumen. And so he's really got to find his value on offense and he is not finding his value on offense. He's, you know, a, a fairly capable scorer around the basket. He can do a little bit of creation, but he's not a guy who's shoveling the ball to him. Being like, oh, here's just an, an overpowering scorer who's just going to be able to create around the basket at a high percentage. He's just nothing special in that respect. He's nothing particularly special in that respect. And he's not a shooter either. He, he's shooting about 27%. He does not attempt many threes. He's averaging about 1.3 attempts per game. And he's hitting those at 27%. Needless to say, is bad. He does not attack from the perimeter. I mean, he's not closed out on, so he can hardly attack closeouts, but he's not attacking off the dribble, of course. He is a limited offensive player. And that's really where he has to find his value. Like I said last week, I think he also just needs to, I think that his ultimate possession, if he's going to find good value in the NBA, is going to be a power forward, uh, which will spare him the need to be a dedicated interior defender of any stripe, because I just don't think he's ever going to be able to do it. Or more to the point, I think he's going to continue to be horrible at it. But like there was a moment against the Timberwolves that sticks out in mind in a game against Timberwolves that sticks out to mind for me. And he actually had a decent game against Timberwolves. So the Timberwolves uh, really just fell apart and are a team that's horribly struggling at the moment. Uh, whatever the case, he got the ball at the perimeter and Rudy Gobert basically just sagged off and said, okay, go ahead and shoot. And that can't happen with Marvin Bagley. Marvin Bagley needs to be a dangerous offensive player. And it, it just really stuck in mind, I think, because it was Rudy Gobert, uh, who can, who is still an elite interior defender. And you can really decrease the quality of his defense by, you know, if you have a center who can drag him out to the perimeter. And Marvin Bagley's playing center right now. That's just how it is. Or has been playing center, I'll put it that way, off the bench. But Gobert knew he didn't need to respect uh, Bagley. And he just said, shoot the ball. And Bagley did, and he missed. And he's just not a very good offensive player right now. He is a limited offensive player who is, you know, a center who's a decent scorer. He was, a, you know, maybe above average scorer around the basket. Can't stretch the floor. Can do some, like, elementary creation from around the basket, but not from anywhere else. And is horrible on defense. It's been a disappointing season, in my opinion, for Marvin Bagley. And, you know, sure, he's not being used like he was last, last year as just a persistent role man with Cabe, which was good for him. But even last season, he was not a positive value player. You know, there are plenty of guys who are able to be capable lob threats and just finish at a good percentage on easy opportunities created for them by others. And I mean, Bagley shot in the high 70s, I think 78% of the restricted area last season. You know, if you can keep that up, that's excellent. But still, in that case, you're a guy who's, a, who's just a, a very strong finisher. 
does not really bring much else on offense at all. And is a horrible defender. And, and granted, he was playing a lot of center at that point. But um, and, and I, I think at power forward, probably the he, he's less of a liability, though. Again, if you put him in, in a situation in which he's got to in which he's required to make the right reads and rotations and switches, it, it's likely he's going to be the eventual point of failure, point of failure in your defense. So he's just got to find good value on offense. And he is not. So obviously, you know, it sucks that he's injured. I mean, that goes without saying, I don't really know where I was going with that, I suppose, but um, it had been a, it had been a disappointing season for him so far. The question is uh, in, in terms of throughout the duration of his absence, uh, which is, you know, six to eight weeks is a, is a significant period of time. What does Dwayne Casey do? Uh, when uh, Marvin was absent recently for what I believe was just a couple of games due to a non-COVID illness, uh, what Casey did was just push guys up the lineup. Like Hamadou Diallo found his way back in uh, because, you know, Kevin Knox and Sadiq Bey were playing up the lineup. And then Casey would, he would just take, uh, I can't remember whom he took out first, whether it was Duran or Stewart. And he would just stagger them for the rest of uh, the rest of the half. Uh, I don't think that's likely to happen for the next six to eight weeks. Uh, that's made for some seriously small lineups, and it's just not something I see Casey persistently doing. Especially because I, I think he's really at this point uh, trying to play Isaiah Stewart a power forward a lot, uh, just for the sake of trying to uh, see what can be unlocked in, in, in that capacity in terms of Isaiah's game. So I believe we'll, we're going to see some Nerlens Noel minutes. Uh, Nerlens has hardly played at all. Uh, like to such a degree that you know, like when when Bagley was out, it's like like but was out earlier in the season. I mean, I guess Casey had not yet begun playing Stewart very much a power forward, but kind of wonder what the situation is. You know, it's like it, Noel has just been absent to a sort of strange degree. But I'd be surprised if we don't see a certain number of Noel minutes. Uh, probably a somewhat significant number of Noel minutes for the foreseeable future. Uh, or Dwayne Casey just hates him, and we don't see him at all. One of the two. Uh, number two, Hamadou Diallo. So uh, Hamadou has made a reappearance lately and, you know, has given the Pistons some decent minutes, just kind of as an energy guy. Uh, he's scored in, in double digits in four straight games. Well, the four straight games that he played, he got suspended. Uh, and in that game against Orlando, he was in double digits in only 13 minutes, 13 and a half minutes. So I believe that that leads back to the question. It's like, can Hamadou Diallo be a positive value a player like a, a solid rotation player if you can't shoot. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that I like Hamadou. I feel like he could be a really good player if he could shoot. He can't shoot. And so I think the answer is no. I think it's more of just kind of like a, you know, Hamadou can be a solid player, uh, you know, a, a solid option on a bad team who doesn't have like a player who doesn't have a glaring deficiency like that to play instead of him. Now, I know I'm sort of a broken record about this, but of course, not being able to shoot the ball as a perimeter player is a massive, massive, massive weakness. And it's generally a career killer these days in the NBA. If you can't shoot threes, well, number one, you can't shoot threes. And that's a super efficient shot to take. Open threes are very efficient shots. Number two, you cannot participate. Uh, you, you are not a floor spacer. You know, you, you cannot help to space the floor. Uh, you want to space the floor in order to create opportunities for people to, for teammates to attack the basket and defenders are not going to respect you. And number three, you make life more difficult on everybody else. You know, and that's, kind of a continuation on point number two there guys are the defenders are free to and will simply sag off of you and clog up the interior uh that's just eliminates driving lanes for everybody else and this brings to mind for me a play of hamadou's in the recent game against the magic before he got ejected actually very similar to the play i just went over between uh, rudy gobert and marvin bagley diallo had the ball at the top of the three-point line 
he was being guarded, I believe, as a result of a switch by, or maybe not, I can't remember. Uh, but he was being guarded by Bulbul, who saw Hamadou, recognized him as a non-shooter, and just planted himself about 10 feet inside the three-point line. Because he knew that Hamadou was unlikely to shoot the ball. If he was going to shoot the ball, he was very, very likely to miss. And so he just decided to position himself to take away the drive, which is, you know, rightly what he judged would be the really the only thing that Hamadou would be able to do well in that situation. And in doing so, he also helped to clog up a lot of space in the interior. But also Hamadou was pretty much just helpless. It's like, you can't shoot the ball. And Bol Bol is, has positioned himself very well to stop the drive. So there's nothing he can do but just get rid of the ball. You all know how I feel about Hamadou. If he, if he were a shooter, I think he could score in the mid to high uh, teens and points per game. If he could just do that and be the energizer bunny on both ends, then I think he'd be a very valuable player. And then that his energy and his, his athleticism could, you know, could go a substantial way toward making up for what is kind of below average defensive IQ. But he can't shoot. And as I've said, though, it makes me sad to say it. I, I think that at this point, he's unlikely to become a shooter anytime soon. And I think he's likely to be off the team at the end, uh, at the end of the season uh, when his contract includes. And finally, Killian Hayes, who was suspended for three games. Well, suspension's now over. He'll be back for Wednesday's game against the Warriors, but was suspended for his part in the scuffle that resulted from Mo Wagner shoving him into the crowd. Uh, my thoughts on that. I just want to share my thoughts on that, rather. Uh, what Wagner did was dirty, of course, and dangerous. And as I understand it, he has a bit of a history of being a weasel like that. Uh, that said, I believe that Killian's response was not exactly ideal. Standing up for himself? You know, fine. Absolutely. Do that. I mean, I think there are situations in which best it's best to not do that. Because if you can get the other guy ejected, or just the other guy is going to be ejected, and you just kind of keep your cool and don't do anything, and then you are able to continue playing. But, you know, if it were merely standing up for himself, fine. The way that he went about it, I think, was less than ideal. I don't subscribe to the notion that he, you know, willfully just aimed this um, this targeted punch at the back of Wagner's head. I think you watch it. It's, in my opinion, pretty clear that this was just a wild forearm thrown by somebody who completely lost his temper. Uh, nonetheless, it's still pretty dangerous to hit somebody, uh, somebody whose back has turned in that area of the body. I think that's not ideal. I think it happened because Killian completely lost it. Uh you know, I, I think that was the wrong thing to do. I think it'll be a growing experience for him and that he won't lose his temper like that again. So not faulting the guy for standing up for himself and what Wagner did was definitely dirty. Uh, but I think the way that he went about it was not great and that the suspension was warranted. It was only three games. So like I said, just wanted to, to get across my thoughts about that. All right, folks. So that'll be it for today's episode. Uh, next episode will be a mid-season review. Just talk about season storylines how this season has gone versus preseason expectations and give grades for each player. I would love it if you follow the show on Twitter. It's at to the basket pod. Always love to hear from you on there. And as always, thank you for listening. Catch you in next week's episode.